Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, it's great to see everyone here at Scotts Hill who have gathered live with us in person. Those of you who are in the Cross Point Center, let me give a shout out to you. It's so great that you are there joining us as well. And those of you who are watching us online, we're so glad that you're able to continue to keep up with us. Each week we're doing some things that we're lightening up our restrictions so we can regather our people back together so we can get back to the body of Christ regathering, having a great time of exalting God to encourage one another and to um, evangelize the world. So we want to encourage you to continue to join us in all the aspects of ministries that we have. For the last 30 years, I've been involved in a lot of different kind of ministries, and as you are a pastor of a church, one of those ministries is you do funerals. And I've done my share of funerals over the 30 years, and I participated in many of them, and I was there just to be a person celebrating the life of a person who has passed away. But at all these funerals, there's a part of it that's called a eulogy. And in the eulogy, you are to speak about the person's life. You speak about their legacy. You speak about their testimony. You speak about all those things. Now, you never try to preach a person into heaven or obviously into hell. You just speak about their life. And for the overwhelming funerals that I've done, that's been very pleasurable to do that. There have been some funerals where it was very difficult because I didn't know the individual or even because of the tragedy at hand. But you always try to speak the truth about a person's life and legacy. I was reading about a a very well-known man in a certain city who passed away. Now, he was well-known because of his sordid lifestyle. He was a womanizer. He had multiple adulterous affairs on his wife. He was a person who had dishonest gain. He took over companies and he mistreated people. He was very narcissistic, self-centered. He was the kind of guy that was uncaring about people's pain and condition in life. He was one of those people that when they died, nobody really missed them. Well, he had a younger brother. And a younger brother came to a very respected, well-known pastor in the community. And he said, listen, I'm, I'm pay, I would pay you $1,000 if you officiate my brother's service. And he said, there's one catch, though. I will give you this $1,000, but you have to tell everyone there that my brother was a saint. Well, he said, sir, you, you know the lifestyle that your brother lived. He said, I, I know, I know that. And everybody knows that. You don't have to say much. All you have to do is somewhere in there say that my brother was a saint. And to his surprise, the pastor agreed to do it. The day of the memorial service came. The eulogy part comes up and the man, the pastor, walks up to the platform. He begins to eulogize him by opening these words. He says, the man before us was a womanizer. He was unfaithful to his wife. He was dishonest in all of his gain. He mistreated people. He was self-centered. He was a guy that cared nothing about people's pain. But compared to his younger brother, he was a saint. He got his $1,000. Today, as we're continuing in our study of Amos, you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the book of Amos? Take your Bibles or your your, your devices, open to Amos chapter 6. We're going to look at chapter 6 and chapter 5. We're combining them together. And the reason I open with that story is because Amos is about to give a eulogy for the people of Israel. He is about to give a a memorial service. Chapters 5 and 6 
are a funeral song. And when Amos begins to speak of the people of Israel, he is not going to pull any punches. He's not going to use words of flattery here. He is going to speak about the kind of people that they are and the testimony and the legacy that they are leaving behind. And Amos is not popular. You remember that Amos was just a, a, a farmer, a, 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 a cattle man. He was a shepherd. He was a picker of figs, but he became this faithful prophet. And he goes from the southern tribe of Judah to Israel to preach God's word to them. So far, he has reminded them of their self-righteousness that they point their fingers at other people, but God is about to point his finger at them. He also spoke to them about their spiritual complacency, that there was truth, but there was no reality of that truth in their lives. He spoke to them about their, their um, superficial religion, that while they had all of the rituals, they were empty and dead. And we saw last week that he spoke to them about their secular worldview. They claimed to be people of God, but they never lived by it. Today, he is going to speak to them about their self-indulgence. And in chapter 6, and in jumping back to chapter 5, we're going to see what God's word has to say about the people in Amos' day. 750 B.C., 2770 years ago, he starts to... He begins to address them. And here's what you're going to find today. As we unpack these verses, you're going to find a striking parallel of where we are today, not only as a nation, but as a church in the West. And so as Amos begins to do this, he opens up with a word to remind them of their situation. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. The people in Israel were living on easy street. They had it made. Under Jeroboam, never had the country expanded its borders like it had been during this time. Never had the prosperity of the people been experienced as all of their investments. I mean, the Dow Jones was going through the roof. Consumer confidence was at an all-time high. The military was great. Then they saw that, oh, housing sales was going through the roof. Uh, um, livestock was in abundance. Everything that you can imagine that was significant to bring ease and comfort to a nation, the people of Israel were experiencing it. They were at ease. They were living on easy street. But the problem was this. They failed to remember that easy street is almost always a dead-end street. And while they were living in the lap of luxury, they had developed within them a sinful ease, a sinful rest. Now, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with resting. God's Word tells us that we are to rest. From Old Testament to New Testament, we find that the fourth commandment is that we are to keep holy the Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. We find the Lord Jesus even speaks to his own disciples. In Mark chapter 6, he says, come away with me and rest for a while. In Matthew chapter 11, he tells the people, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. The writer of Hebrews speaks about a future rest. And the book of Revelation talks about an eternal rest. That's not the kind of rest that he's speaking about here. He's speaking about this sinful ease where people have drifted into a mindset of indifference, laziness, and apathy. 
They are enjoying the luxury of their lives. They're enjoying the leisure of their days. They're enjoying the false security of a future that is not even theirs. And as a result, they have grown so apathetic that they forgot who they were. I love the way C. Spurgeon talks about this sinful ease. A uh, 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 preacher of many years ago, he breaks it down like this. He says, sinful ease is not the confidence of a man who is pardoned, but the ease of a hardened wretch who has learned to despise his punishment. It is not the assurance of one who is on a rock, but the ease of a senseless drunkard whose house is tottering from its sandy foundations. It's not the calm of a soul at peace with God, but the ease of a madman who, because he has hidden his sin from his own eyes, thinks that he has concealed it from God. It is the ease and peace of one who has grown callous, hardened, brutalized, stupid, sullen, and careless, who has begun a sleep which God grant may soon be broken, or else it will surely bring him to where he will make his bed in hell. There's a sinful ease that leads us down a path of a dead-end street. And here's what Amos is saying to the people of Israel. He gives them four demonstrations of a person when they live with a sinful ease. And then when we relate it to where we are today, we'll have to ask the question, wow, does that represent us? Does that represent me? Am I growing into a place of such spiritual complacency because of the blessings in my life that I lose sight of who I am? Here's, here's how he puts it. Here's the first point that he gives. Sinful ease is demonstrated in presumption. Sinful ease is always presented, demonstrated through presumption. He lays this out in verse 1. Here's how he says it. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Here's what he's saying to them. He says, you're living with a sinful ease, and you're living with a very presumptuous spirit that everything is going to be secure for you. Here's why. Because you're from Samaria, Samaria was a natural fortress. It was a city that was located on top of a mountain. And the people there thought, well, we are naturally protected because we could see the enemies coming from a long distance, and even if we see an army approaching, we have plenty of time to prepare for an assault. And so they put all of their confidence in their location as a city and as a nation. But he also says that you people who are bragging because of the notable men, the first to the nations. The people said, not only do we have this great fortress, not only do we have this great nation, not only do we have this great wealth, but we have the greatest leaders. We've got the greatest spiritual leaders. We've got the greatest political leaders. We've got the greatest philosophers. We've got the greatest engineers. We've got the greatest people who can bring about the greatest result of a nation. And they put all of their confidence in where they were located in the formidability of the city and of the success of their leaders. And God reminds them in verse 2, he says this to him: Pass over to Calne and see from there. Go to Hamath, the great. Calne and Hamath were Syrian cities, great, formidable cities that were destroyed and now under the control of Israel. Then go down to Gath 
of the Philistines. The Philistines had five great cities. Of the greatest was Gath. That was the home, remember, of Goliath and his brothers. And they were destroyed, and now Judah has control over them. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your own territory? Here's the point. God is saying you're putting all of your your confidence in your city. You're putting all your confidence in your nation. You're putting all your confidence in your economy. You're putting all of your confidence in your leaders. And you are presumptuous in thinking that this will never happen to me. And God says, I'm the one that destroyed these great cities. These impenetrable cities I brought to nothing And you think that you're greater than they are? You see, what happened to Israel, they developed an unhealthy view of who they were. They forgot who they were. And let me give you three things in their unhealthy view. First is this. They had an unhealthy view of nationalism. An unhealthy view of nationalism. Were they the people of God? Yes. Were they chosen by God? Yes. Were they unlike any other nation on the face of the earth? Yes. But they were that because of God's choosing and God's greatness, not because of their own greatness and accomplishment. And because of that, they had the sin of nationalism that went beyond the sight of who they were in God. They developed an unhealthy view of nationalism. Secondly, they developed an unhealthy view of patriotism. Here's what's really interesting. When you see the listing of the people of God, they were always referred to as the armies of the living God. But then they became known as the armies of Israel. And while they lost their sight of who they were fighting for, they began to see that we're fighting for ourselves and their greatness came in their own pride. And here's the third thing that happened. There was an unhealthy view of individualism. They drifted from this collective understanding of who they were as a people of God. Now it's all about who they are in themselves and what they can get. When I think of this, I think of how far they drifted from who they were as a people of God. Now, when I I look at these things, you don't have to look very far to see the reality of this in our culture. Isn't that true? I think that there can be an unhealthy view of nationalism and patriotism and even individualism. And let me just say this. While that certainly can be true of America, here's the problem with the church today. We have drifted from our security in Christ and our security in God that we've so easily drifted into our security as being Americans. But the thing that makes us distinctively different as a people is not that we are citizens of America, but that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. That is the thing that makes us distinctively different because there are children of God who live in Pakistan. There are children of God who live in Africa. There are children of God who live in Canada. There are children of God who live in the Philippines. There are children of God who live in China. And the thing that makes all of us unique and distinctively different from the God, from God and the world is our citizenship in heaven. And here's what we lose sight of, I think, many times in the church. 
We start to think that our security is going to be based upon the things around us, that our security is going to be based upon the strength of our nation, that our security is going to be built upon the uniqueness of our political system. And then what we do is we fall into the same trap of the people of Israel, and we forget who we are. Let me remind you of a couple of things Jesus says in Matthew Chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of America and his righteousness. He doesn't say that, does he? Now, I'm not down on America. I'm glad that I'm born in this country. But this is not the sense of my security. And it never will be. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. I think we've lost sight of that. And I think we've become like the people of Israel who have been all about themselves rather than being the people of God. Let me, let me give you four things that I thought of this week that I think are reminders to Christians in the body of Christ. Number one, our identity is not in a party, but in a priesthood. It's in a priesthood. What does Peter say? He says, you are a chosen generation a holy nation, a people of God's own possession that you should proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who we are. Secondly, our banner is not of a donkey or an elephant, but of a lamb who was slain for us. John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me give you a third point. Our kingdom is not temporal, but it's eternal. Everything in this world is going to pass away, as John says in 1 John chapter 2. The things of the world are passing away even now. But we have an eternal kingdom that we look to things that are not visible but invisible. Here's my favorite one party may hold the White House, but our God holds the universe. Let me tell you what I've heard so many people say. What's going to happen if my candidate doesn't win? And there is fear and concern. Now, there will be consequences, no doubt. But it is not the end of the world because our God is in charge of all things. That's what we need to remember we cannot be so presumptuous that thinking just because we're people of a certain nation that our security falls there. No, our security falls in the one who holds all the nations. Amen? Amen. Let me give you the second thing he says. Sinful ease is not only demonstrated in our presumption, but is demonstrated in our procrastination. You see, the people procrastinate. They hear what Amos is saying, and then he says this in verse 3. I love this. O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Oh, they're putting off the day of the Lord. They're putting it way off. Oh, let's not deal with that now. Let's just kick that thing down the road a little bit. You know what? Life is great, man. Listen, just stop listening to Amos. I mean, he's just a negative naysayer. He's a Debbie Downer. Yeah, he's a Karen. Let's get him out of here. You know, we don't want to listen to him anymore. Besides, life is too good. 
Man, I'm in real estate. I've got six closings this week. Man, the Dow is up. I've got to take care of that. You know, look at all this stuff that's going on. Man, we are set. Let's just enjoy life. This kind of stuff doesn't come around often. And by the way, there's plenty of time to take care of that. Do we have social injustice? Sure. But somebody will come along and fix it. Do we have unrighteousness? Yes, we do. But somebody else, some great preacher will come along and straighten us up. Is there a moral decline? Yes, but there are things that we can do to work our ways out of that. But right now, let's just enjoy what we've got. And there's a sin of procrastination that begins to fall into their laps. And now here's the danger. He says in there, he says that you're trying to stay away from the seat of violence. But the very thing you're trying to stay away from, you are inviting when you do not listen to me. Wow. And so what did they do? They just wanted to put it off, put it off, put it off. And I think that what happens a lot of times, we all know about procrastination. Because everybody who's hearing my voice right now, everybody who's watching me online, you all know that every one of us has the propensity of procrastinating. Some of you and me are more gifted than others at that. And so we're all about procrastinating. We procrastinate when we hear maybe some studies that we have to do for school. We procrastinate maybe on some projects. We procrastinate on a job. We procrastinate in that relationship that should be healed. We procrastinate in dealing with that difficult topic that I've got to talk to my kids about. We procrastinate in all kinds of things. Procrastination is putting off tomorrow what I should do today. It's putting off tomorrow what I should do today. And procrastination creates a problem, especially when it comes to listening to and obeying the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Somebody asked me, is procrastination a sin? Yes, it is a sin. It is a sin. You might say, now how is it a sin? Well, let's just look at Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, Jesus says this, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that a brother has something against you, leave your gift, go make it right, and then come bring your gift. Many people say, oh, I'll take care of that later. Jesus is saying it's urgent. Do it now. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. My wife and I never do. We stay up and fight all night. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. That is not true. Don't let your sun go, the sun go down on your anger. And thus giving the devil a foothold. Do it now. A root of bitterness is going to settle in, and you're going to pay for that later. Perhaps the greatest warning is in the book of Hebrews. The writer says this in verse, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in verse 15, he says this, and it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, he wants us to do it now. And there needs to be understanding that there's an urgency in it. But when you and I procrastinate, let me give you four things that happen through procrastination. Procrastination robs us of the sense of urgency. I don't need to do that now. You know, I got plenty of time. I'll do it later. Then in lack of urgency, it robs us of a sense of importance. Oh, it's not really that important. 
And then the lack of importance robs us of a sense of necessity. Do I really have to do that? And then a lack of necessity leads us with an apathetic heart. These are not in your notes. If you want, you can take a picture of the screen. Maybe with me in it. But I noticed you all procrastinated on that opportunity. But the reality is this. When the Holy Spirit begins to deal with your heart, and some of you know what I'm talking about because he's been pressing in on your heart about some issues, and you've said, oh, it's not that urgent, and then now it's not that important. Oh, it's not really necessary, and now you have an apathetic heart, and when the Holy Spirit comes to convict you, it might be at best just a, maybe just a little bit of an impulse in you, but your heart has grown cold. And what happened to the people of God? They heard the word and they kept putting it off. Let me tell you, believers, believers, listen to me. When you keep putting off what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do, there will become eventually a coldness in your heart and you no longer feel the prompting and the presence of the Spirit of God. And you wonder what went wrong. You put it off so long that there's no longer, you're, you've become numb spiritually. And let me say this, if you're, if you're a person who's not a Christian and you've heard the message of the gospel over and over and over, you know that Jesus died for your sins, you know that he paid the price for your sins, he, you know that he's the only person who can help you, he's the only one who can forgive you, he's the only one that can give you a relationship with God that will last forever, and you keep putting it off and you put it off, you can procrastinate and put off salvation today, but your procrastination does not preserve salvation tomorrow. It doesn't. And God is saying to you, don't procrastinate. You see, they become presumptuous. Then they begin to procrastinate. But here's the third thing they did. Sinful ease is demonstrated in self-indulgent pleasures. Isn't this amazing? It goes all inward now. Everything's inward. It's all about me. There's the individualism that creeps into a person when they walk in false security and they do not listen to the promptings of the Spirit of God. It goes inward. And now it's all about me and my pleasures. Let me show you how he breaks it down. He breaks it down into four categories of what's happening, and we're going to fly through these pretty quickly, okay? First of all, he talks about extravagant furnishings. Chapter 6, verse 4a, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches. Now, you might, not say, you might say, this doesn't sound extravagant, but in this day, it was very extravagant. People didn't sleep on beds. Most of them slept on, on quilts and blankets and pallets on the floor. They didn't have couches. They didn't have the furniture that we have. But, man, I'll tell you what, home decor was all the rage in this day. Everybody was buying beds and furniture and couches, and it was all about their furnishings, and your furnishings determined what kind of person you were in the social order of this day. I love the story about this, this repairman who went to this very, very wealthy lady's house. He goes into there, and, to, and he's doing work in the living room. And uh, he goes into the dining room, and he's walking through, and she says, please, please, be careful of my dining room table and my chairs. This dining room and table and chairs, they go back to Louis IV. And he said, I know what you mean, lady. If I don't make my payment by Friday, all my furniture goes back to rooms to go on the 10th. And so, and so everybody has that. 
Everybody has to struggle with this. But here's what happened. They were so in their extravagant furnishings. But then he moves to the second thing. Not only did they have extravagant furnishings, they had exquisite food. And they eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Most of the people in this day only ate meat maybe, maybe once or twice a week. But here they are. They are enjoying veal cutlets. I'm not talking about Wendy's. I'm not talking about Chick-fil-A. I'm talking more about like Port City Chop House at night. <laughs> I mean, this was expensive stuff. I know a lady in this place that works at Port City Chop House. But they were ex the most exquisite food. Number three, here's the other thing they did. The entertaining festivals. Oh, they love to gather who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. They were just enjoying the leisure time. Let me tell you what they live for. They live for the weekend. They live for the moment. They just live for the pleasure. They consider themselves to be little Davids by sitting around writing songs all day long and making that really, really spiritual. But then there's a fourth one, elaborate fineries. I didn't even know fineries was a word, but I typed it in, and it did not have a red line under it, so I'm good to go on it, okay? <laughs> Elaborate fineries who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils. I mean, this is amazing. They're drinking their wine in bowls. Now, Amos is not saying that drinking wine is wrong. What he is saying is the abuse of alcohol is wrong. And they're abusing it like crazy. They're drinking it in bowls. I mean, they are having parties galore. I mean, hey, life was great. Let's just enjoy every moment that we can. And then they love the oils. The oils and the fragrance and the lotions and all that. And let me say, it wasn't just for women. It was for men. I mean, they love to cover themselves in all of this smell. Now, I have a confession to make. My wife has a lot of, of all, my wife has all kinds of um, oils and lotions, and man, they sell, smell really, really good, but I have to confess, I'm into that too. I, I know some of you are thinking, no, I'm not Pastor Phil. I am. I mean, she's got her oils and stuff that smell like um, flowers and lavender and stuff like that, and I've got mine too. This is what I use. It's called um, Dead Down Wind. <laughs> I use it for hunting, and I smell like dirt. And I, I really prefer, prefer mine over my wife's any day. And so, so the thing is this. They were so elaborate in all of these things. But here's the problem. They were so consumed with materialism that they lost sight of the one who blesses them. Now, let me say this. You could take that down. <laughs> starting to smell like dirt up there. <laughs> Let me say this. The truth is we can give thanks to God for the blessings. God gives us wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with blessings. But it's when we pursue the blessing over the blesser is when we lose sight of the or, or we lose sight of what God wants to do in loving us versus the seduction of material things. Now we can all say this. We can look at our own homes, and compared to most homes in the world, we would have to agree that we live in luxury. There's more food in your pantry right now. I don't know what your pantry looks like, but I can guarantee you this. There's more food in your pantry that's in most homes in the world. And when you walk in and open the door and you say, I have nothing to eat, 
you really don't know what that means. And the warning is this. We cannot be so called up into the blessings that we lose sight of why the Father has given them to us and what they're there for. The Lord Jesus reminds us by saying this. He says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then in verse 34 of that same chapter, for where your treasure is, there will be your hearts also. So the people had lived for themselves. But here's the natural decline in this. The logical approach of walking in presumption and procrastination and your own pleasures, the logical approach is number four. A sinful ease is demonstrated in passivity. Passivity, I lose sight of those around me. Amos says this in chapter 6, verse 6b. He says, but you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now, many people say, what, what does that mean? What does that phrase mean? You're not grieving over the ruin of Joseph? Who's Joseph? He's talking about Joseph, the son of Jacob, the favored son, the one with the coat of many colors, the one that didn't have to work. And we know he didn't have to work because the coat went down to his wrist and went all the way down to his ankles. And a person wore that. They didn't have to work. They couldn't work. So he was a favored son. And his brothers hated him. On one occasion, his father said, go check on your brothers at Shechem and come back and give me a report. He was also a tattletale on his brothers. They hated him. He goes down to Shechem, and they say, here comes that dreamer now. Let's kill him. They take off his jacket. They throw him into a pit. And here's where it comes to be the reality. In chapter 37, he's in the pit. And then the next verse says, while they threw him in the pit, they sat down to eat. Now, the inference is this. Joseph is in the pit He's screaming for his life. He's crying for mercy to his brothers. He's asking them to help him. He's asking for pity. And while Joseph is in ruin and crying out for someone to deliver him, they sat down and they ate, unmoved, uncaring, unconcerned. And here's the charge. You are living your luxurious lives in your homes with your furnishings and your food. And there are people crying at your gate who are starving to death. And you do nothing. Because it's all about you. And then he says in chapter 5, But let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Right now, I don't have to make an application for you. Because in your minds, you see people. You know people. Who need your help. And we go to our homes at the end of the day. We turn on our televisions. We eat our supper. We go to our beds. And there are people all around us who are dying. In fact, while I told you this, 44 kids in Africa just died. 
what happens? We lose sight of who we are and what God has called us to. So what does Amos do? He lays these out. Then he gives them God's judgment. Two verses. Chapter 6, verse 7. He says, therefore, there shall now be the first of those who go into exile. Remember, we got the first of them. We got the nobles. Guess what? Your first and your nobles are the first ones to go to exile. And revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. All you people who sleep on your couches and stretch out and love the luxury of your home, it's all gone. Then in verse 14, he says this. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation. That's Assyria. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from uh, Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. That means to the north and to the south. Assyria is going to come in and destroy everything. And we're going to leave the poorest people to have which you wouldn't give them. Wow. But in chapter 5, here's the heart of the Father. He gives him an opportunity. In Amos chapter 5, verse 4, here's what he says. For thus says the Lord, the house of Israel, seek me and live. Chapter 5, verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And he's saying this, Seek me. Here's the answer. Stop. Come to me. I am your source of security. Don't put your trust in your nation and your military prowess. I am the source of your pleasures. I will give you blessings forever. And at my, in my presence, there is joy unspeakable. Stop. I'm the one that will satisfy your soul. He calls out to the very people the ones he's been warning, he gives the opportunity for redemption. Unfortunately, they do not respond and they go into exile. So what is God saying to us today? What is he saying to the people of God at Scott's Hill? I think four things. Number one, seek the Lord Jesus for your security. He's the one that's going to bring the security of your life. The things of this world, all the trinkets, and they're just trinkets, compare nothing to what Jesus has for you. He is your security. Not that relationship, not that job, not that 401k, not that dream. Jesus is your security. Secondly, seek the Lord Jesus for your satisfaction. He is the one that will satisfy your soul. People are looking for experiences today. They're looking for emotions. They're looking for all kinds of spiritual things that seem to be missing in their life. Let me tell you something. I've been there, and they're empty. But when you seek the Lord Jesus, and you seek to obey Him, and you seek to please His heart, let me tell you what will happen. He will give you every kind of joy imaginable, and you don't have to run to seek it because you seek Him. Seek Him. Thirdly, Seek the Lord Jesus for sensitivity for others. As we go through this life and we give thanks for the blessings that he's given us, may we be obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as we seek to love people the way 
Jesus loved them. And lastly, seek the Lord Jesus for your salvation. If you're here today or you're watching me in the Cross Point Center or you're watching me online, my friend, listen to me. Today's the day of salvation. You have no other opportunity but today. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, the creator of the universe is standing before you today, right now, telling you how much he loves you, that you know this truth. And he's calling you to surrender right now. Don't wait because tomorrow is not promised. Right now is all you have. Church, may we be the people of God. May we not walk with a presumptuous spirit. May we not walk with procrastination. May we not live with just self-serving pleasure. And may our hearts not be so cold and passive to the people around us. In other words, may we be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that we can look at your word that was written 2,770 years ago and how it applies to us right this moment. And Father, as we have spoken about not procrastinating, Father, may we right now yield to the prompting of your spirit within us. And those areas, Father, that we need to repent of, may we turn from them and turn to you. And Father, may we walk in obedience. That the desire of our heart is not simply to follow rules. There's no affection in that. But the desire of our heart is to please you. Because that's where our passion is. And our love lies. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or want to know more about Jesus, visit www.scottshill.org podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.